Today's reading is from Psalm 32. We're going to be using the Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you, while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and brittle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is God's word. Good evening, everyone. My name's Nick. I'm one of the ministers here, and let's pray. Uh, Father, your words... Um is wonderful to us. It speaks such wonderful truth into our messy lives. And we pray, as we come to it again this evening, we pray you be opening our eyes. We pray you be lifting our eyes to you, that we may see you as you really are, and that we may respond to you the right way. Amen. Uh, so I'd love to start by uh, asking you a question. Um, what do you do when your conscience is troubled? When you feel bad about something, your conscience keeps reminding you, what do you do in moments like that? Um, it was Mark Twain that said, a clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. Um, we've all got times like this, don't we? We all have moments where our conscience is bothering us. What do you do in those moments? You know the kind of moment I'm talking about. You've done something wrong, whatever. You imagine some area of your life for yourself. You've done something wrong and you get to a quiet moment in your day and your conscience reminds you, you get that sinking feeling. Maybe you just shut the laptop or you've just left the meeting, you've got a pause and your conscience reminds you, you get that oh, feeling. What do you do when your conscience is troubling you? Um, as a society, we've kind of beginning to realise it really matters what we do with a, with a guilty conscience. There's a whole body of research uh, into the negative effects that guilt can have on people. Um, one study that I looked at, I didn't read the whole thing, I read a summary. Um, <laughs> But the summary said <laughs> of this one study um, that um, guilt can actually affect your immune system. If you struggle with ongoing guilt over the long term, it can make you more susceptible to illness. Another study um, uh, that, that I wrote, that, the summary of which I read, said um, that people suppressing guilt literally feel heavier in themselves and physically demanding tasks seem uh, harder to them. Guilt, guilt can affect you physically. What, what you do with a troubled conscience is a big deal. So what do you do? How do you deal when your conscience uh, is troubling you? Um, the, the psalm we're looking at, Psalm 32 this evening, uh, is, it offers a window into one man's experience, King David's experience of a guilty conscience. We see what it felt like for him, what he did about it, and how he came to taste the freedom and the joy of knowing that God has forgiven him. I suppose this psalm really is inviting us to taste that joy for ourselves. 
as well. Just the way it fits together. Uh, verse one and two, this is where we're headed. Verse one and two, David's going to tell us that forgiveness is wonderful. In verse three to five, he's going to tell us that denial is draining. And then we get two implications. Uh, take refuge in God while you can, verses six and seven, and come to God willingly, verses kind of eight to the end. So that's where we're headed. First big thing, we're going to dive in verses one and two, where David reminds us that being forgiven is wonderful. So check out verse one with me. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now it might sound like he's like repeating himself there, um, but actually each phrase there has a slightly different shade of meaning. It's a bit like he's holding forgiveness up like a jewel and turning it round so we can see the light shining through from different angles. So for example, there, there are three different words he uses for sin here, and they've got different shades of meaning. The first word, um, do you see there in verse one, transgressions. Now that word means uh, crossing the line, crossing a known boundary, right? It's the way that you and me, sometimes I can, we can know that something is wrong and choose to do it anyway. That's transgression. The second word he uses later in verse one, uh, sin. That means uh, missing the mark, falling short. That's the way that you and I, I know the person that I should be, the husband, the friend, the colleague that I should be. And yeah, I fall short. Time and again, I miss the mark. The third word uh, there later in verse two, it's translated sin again. Actually, in Hebrew, it's a different word. It's translated in verse five as iniquity. This word is, is a word for, for, for twisting something. It's the way that my inner selfishness can take a good thing and twist it. Right? It's the way that I can take a good thing like rest and twist it into just a selfish self-indulgence or, or money and twist it into greed or, or sexuality and twist it into lust. It's my inner selfishness that twists things. So three pictures there, three pictures of our, our guilt, transgression, uh, sin, iniquity. And I don't know how you feel about those. Like I imagine here there'll be a spectrum. Some of us will have sensitive consciences. We might feel terrible about these things. Some of us maybe not so bothered. But the truth is, wherever you are on that spectrum, the Bible says that, that, that those things are true of each of us, that we do have guilt that stands between us and God, and it's a real problem. But the wonderful thing here in verse one and two is that those three pictures of guilt, they're matched by three pictures of forgiveness. So have a look down at verse uh, one with me again. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. That word forgiven there has the sense of a, a burden being lifted. Have you ever been hiking with a heavy pack? And you take it off and it feels great, you feel like you're floating, burden lifted. Next picture, um, in, uh, later in verse one, uh, whose sins are covered. That word there has a picture of like, uh, imagine my, 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 my guilt's exposed, my shame is exposed, it can be seen, and then it gets covered over. You know, like uh, Adam and Eve in a garden, they realize they're naked, they're ashamed, God covers them, covers their guilt, their shame. Third picture, um, verse two, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. 
doesn't count against him. That, the, the, the image here is of a debt. There's a crushing debt. The, the damage has been done. There's a crushing debt hanging over me. I can't pay it. And then it's paid for me. Debt's paid. So do you see, guys, all three pictures there are images of relief, a burden lifted, shame covered, debt paid. The images of relief. Because that's what it feels like for God to take away your guilt. It is wonderful. (laughs) You can hold your head high again. You can look people in the eye again. It is wonderful. It's David's point here. To know this experience personally, deep down in your soul, is magnificent. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the one to know that God sees you right deep down. He knows and sees all the pits that we don't want other people to see. And and to know that that is not just seen, but forgiven is magnificent. Lucky you. David is saying, that's what that word blessed means. If, If you've got this, lucky you. If you've got this, you're to be envied. David is saying. Now, guys, the rest of the Bible makes clear, like Romans chapter 4, that this is offered to anyone and everyone who will trust in Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he took that shame that was mine. He took that burden. He took that debt. And he paid every last penny of it. It's gone. So that now I know there's nothing left to be paid. That that guilt can be free from my shoulders. That is a fountain that you can drink from every day and it never runs out. Now, if you're tuning in or you're here this evening and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, can I just ask, does that sound good to you? Would you like to taste that for yourself? You see, according to David here, that is true blessing. That, knowing that, is true joy. But for those of us um, that would call ourselves Christians this evening, can I just ask, have we forgotten that? Have you forgotten how good it is to be forgiven? Your burden lifted, your shame covered, your debt paid. It is wonderful, according to David here. Now, one of the reasons sometimes that we don't don't always realise how wonderful that is, is that instead of admitting our sin, we kind of try and hide it. And that brings me to my next point, because that's what David tries to do in verses 3 to 5. Check out David's experience here. He's going to tell us that denial is draining. Have a look down at verse 3 with me. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So do you see in verse 3, he's feeling guilty. And what does he try and do? He tries to deal with it by stifling it with silence. You know what he's talking about there? You know the kind of moment he's talking about? where you feel guilty about something. I've got that, 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 you know, that, that moment where my consciousness is bothering me. What do I do? I just try to shove it away. <laughs> try and ignore it. Try and suppress it. Maybe I, I flick the TV on or I get my phone out and just try and distract myself. The problem is, of course, that you can, um, you can ignore your guilt, 
But that doesn't get rid of it. That doesn't get rid of it. It's a bit like a beach ball. You know if you ever played that game where you try and shove a beach ball under the water, what happens? It just pops up somewhere else. You can try and shove your guilt away. You can try and ignore it, but that doesn't deal with it. It pops up in other ways. For David here, it seems to be popping up in physical um, symptoms. Do you see that in verse 3? My bones wasted away. Verse 4, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I mentioned at the beginning, it's a very well-researched fact that if you suppress your guilt, it affects you in all sorts of ways. Freud wasn't the first person to say that suppress, suppressing your guilt is a bad idea. The Bible's been saying it for thousands of years. And the Bible would say, look, of course that's a bad idea. Because if God is the, 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 the life spring, right, we're made to find refreshment, emotional, psychological, spiritual refreshment in God himself. And so if I'm, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm pushing that away and trying to hide my sin, then of course I'm going to be drained and dried up like a tree in the drought, my strength sapped as in the heat of summer. We can, if, I, if, I, if I suppress my guilt or ignore my guilt, that doesn't get rid of my guilt. Only God can get rid of it. And look at what God does in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. Do you notice that? This is quite cool. He uses the same three words for sin. Did you see that? He uses all three words there. It's as if he's saying, I came clean completely. I did. I stopped hiding. I told God everything. And what does God do? The end of verse five, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Just like that. You see, after all that groaning and struggling, verse three and four, he confesses to God and God just forgives him. Uh, St. Augustine loved this bit. He used to say, no, um, no sooner is the word on his lips than the wound is healed. God is so ready, he's so willing to forgive David here. David's only regret is that he didn't do this sooner, that he wasted all that time trying to hide it. See, denial is draining, but confessing, that is, that's the gateway to the pleasures of God. Look, I don't know about you, but for me, I find that this really challenges how I feel about that, that act of confessing sin to God. I wonder how, you, how do you feel about that idea of coming before God and confessing your, your, your sin, confessing your... When I'm feeling guilty, I don't know about you, but that feels really bad to me, right? It feels like a step down. It feels like hitting rock bottom. But this says, no, 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 it's the opposite. It's denial that drags you down. It's trying to hide it that drags you down. Confessing, that is a step up. That's a step back into the light. It's the gateway to the pleasures of God. The whole way through the Bible, confessing is always celebrated. It's a great thing when we do this because the Bible knows that we're a mess. It knows that we're not the people we should be. Confessing is denial that's draining. Confessing, that is the gateway to the pleasures of God. I wonder, is that how you think about it? Forgiveness is wonderful and denial is draining. And so um, David now gives us kind of two implications of that. First implication in verses six and seven is uh, take refuge in God while you can. Have a look down at verse six with me. 
Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Do you notice the image there in verse 6? The rising of mighty waters. Um, in the, in, have you been to the British Museum? There's a, uh, there's a, a bit in there that shows um, videos of the, the, the rising of some mighty waters, the tsunami floods just washing away um, a Japanese village. And you see people scrambling to find a, a place of safety, a refuge. Well, David, David here is urging us to take refuge where he has found refuge. Where is that, verse 7? Have a look. In God himself, to take refuge in God himself. Now, look, this is a terrible comparison, especially to a tsunami, right? But I remember a moment when I was a kid and I got caught in a storm. Um, my, we, we'd gone out on a family cycling trip. Do you know the kind of trip that only your dad is excited about? He drags you all along and you've got to go. One of those. Anyway, we got into the middle of the countryside and a storm rolls in. And we just get absolutely soaked. I was in this little t-shirt. I was quite young, about six or seven, good, like soaked, head to foot soaked. And we tried to sort of find shelter under our coats, didn't really work. We tried to find shelter under a tree, didn't really work. And then eventually my mum beckoned me over um, and she opened her big, her big coat and she, um, I, I kind of sort of leant into her and she wrapped, she wrapped the coat around me. And I remember leaning up against her and hearing the rain like pattering on the outside of the coats. At that moment, my, my refuge was not a place or a thing. It was my mum. Well, David is saying, when you're feeling guilty, make God your refuge. Lean into him. Don't run from him. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? When I'm feeling guilty, I want to run away from God. David is saying, no, no, no. Make him your refuge. Lean into him in that moment, because he's the one that can deal with your guilt and forgive you. He will surround you with songs of deliverance, verse 7 says. Before we move on, I wonder if you notice that there is a note of urgency in verse 6. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Let the faithful pray to you while you may be found, right? While the opportunity is there, implication the opportunity won't always be there. This phrase, while he may be found, that the Bible uses it a number of times, like in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, always to suggest that the moment to turn to God will pass, and you don't know when. The opportunity to turn to him won't always be. There'll be a moment when it becomes too late. And so the only safe time to repent and turn to him is right now. So can I just say, if, if, if you're here and you'll know that you know that you're putting off repenting, you're putting off turning back to God, if that's you, can I just say, please hear the words of verse six, look down with me. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. The only safe time to turn back to him is right now. It's right now, so take refuge in him. That's the first implication. Uh, Second implication in verse 8 and 9, it's kind of really the flip side of the first. It's come to God willingly. Uh, Kind of so far, the whole psalm's been David talking to people. In verse 8 and 9, it seems to flip. It seems to be God addressing us. Um, And look at what he says, verse 8 and 9. 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. So God, God, God's offering there, verse 8, to lovingly lead and guide us through our lives. But to enjoy that, what do we need to do? Well, we have to come willingly. Look at verse 9 again. Don't be a donkey, God is saying to us. Don't be a donkey. What's wrong with donkeys? Well, they have no understanding. They have to have force exerted on them in order to come to you. In other words, they're too stupid to come willingly. They're like, my aunt's got donkeys, and um, they're lovely animals in many ways. Uh, great, the grandkids go on little rides on them, happy days. But one thing you can't do with a donkey, you can't reason with it. You can't sit it down and say, come on, donkey. My aunt treats you really well. How about every now and you just go along and do what she says? Like, what's it going to say? <laughs> you, you, they're too stupid to go willingly. God is saying, David, the psalm is saying, don't be like that with God. If God is putting something on your conscience, turn to him willingly. You might not feel like it. I mean, we rarely do. But go willingly. It strikes me here that I heard a preacher put it this way once, that there are kind of two different attitudes Christians can have to repenting. Donkey-like repentance or David-like repentance. Okay, Donkey-like repentance, that's turning to God sporadically like under compulsion, when I feel embarrassed, I feel I've got to kind of screw up my courage, I hope I won't have to do it again anytime soon. That's donkey-like repentance. David-like repentance, that is coming to God willingly, like confessing regularly, freely, frankly, joyfully secure, able to be vulnerable with God because I know that he's my hiding place. I know that he's the one that forgives me and deals with my guilt. Now, I wonder which of those is more like you, donkey-like repentance or David-like repentance. Come willingly, this psalm urges us. In conclusion then, uh, in verses 10 uh, and 11, David kind of sums up really what he said so far. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. He kind of sets up two options there before us, woe and joy. Option one, the woes of the wicked. What are those? I think it's what we saw in verse three and four. It's the burden of a guilty conscience. The guilt that stands between me and God. Woe. Option two, joy. His unfailing love surrounds those that trust him and their hearts are full with the songs of joy that they sing to one another. Verse 11. Now, those are two options. What's the difference between those two options? It's not whether or not you're guilty. Everyone is. It's whether or not you do verse 5.
See, repentance is the gateway to the pleasures of God. So come to him regularly, freely, frankly, vulnerable to him because he loves us enough to lift our burden, to cover our shame, to pay our debt as Christ died on the cross. And tasting that, knowing that deep down in your bones, that is wonderful.